Welcome to Being Rare, a community conversations platform where we discuss several topics and how they relate to rare illness and the special needs community. Being Rare is brought to you by the Iwi Foundation, a 501c3 healthcare advocacy organization. To learn more about the Iwi Foundation, visit us online at www.theiwifoundation.org. Join the conversation by subscribing or following Being Rare wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Being Rare. We wanted to have a conversation um, specific to bedside manner and how patients um, obtain and receive information from healthcare professionals. To help us with that conversation, we have invited licensed master social worker, Ebony Kimber to the Being Rare Studios. Ebony, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, I'm excited. Good stuff. So this is a conversation that we feel is so important and um, that is really just how doctors communicate information to patient communities. Um, I think one of the first things we wanted to do before we jump into the conversation is have you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how this in, this topic specifically became an important topic for you. Sure, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a social worker for over 13 or 14 years now. Um, I got my bachelor's at UAB, my master's at UA, and um, came straight out of grad school and started doing frontline work at um, an organization that had programs, um, two twofold programs, wraparound services and um, services for kids in foster care. And so I provided frontline services for foster parents um, for first time kids in care, and then to help families prevent their kids from getting in foster care, I provided case management services there. And I did that for a couple of years. I did some supervisor work in that area and just continued to have a lot of passion for kids in foster care. And just, um, I worked, um, they have a camp at that agency that I worked, um, worked at and I worked that camp every year, first for the adoption camp. And then I moved to work for a camp specifically for older youth in foster care. And that just basically changed my life and changed the way that I looked at my career. Um, and I started to really dedicate my career to advocating for youth in foster care who were older in teenage years, because the stories that some of those kids were telling me about them being forgotten and being placed in group homes and not getting their needs met. Some of them were 18, 19, 20 years old without a driver's license, weren't able to get a job, weren't able to visit with their siblings. I mean, just things that are typically normal for, you know, that age group that just wasn't being normalized. And so I worked in a residential facility as a therapist for a little while, figured out that that was not the best place to advocate for those kiddos. And so I moved on to work for an organization for five years where I did advocacy work and was just on the ground training social workers and other adults who work in their lives or who are call themselves helping them in their lives, um, you know, and just helping them understand that you have to start where that child or young adult is, and you have to check your expectations. So when I left that position, I, I work at an elementary school now, 
I wanted to continue that work. I didn't want to leave it completely. So basically what I started doing was um, with my professional development with Ebony Kimber, um, training helping professionals, because what I realized is that there are so many different adults that touch the lives of these young people. Um, we're talking social workers, counselors, um, teachers, nurses, doctors. I mean, the amount of um, how much a doctor or a dentist has an effect in the life of a foster kid was so significant because I once had a client who was terrified of the dentist because she had trauma history. And it was, we had to find a dentist that was sensitive enough that wouldn't hold her down. Cause you know, sometimes at dentist office, they hold them down. Um, we couldn't do that with her. That triggered her more. Um, so we had to find a dentist that was sensitive enough to her to be gentle. Like the whole office had to be on board. And so it brought to me the realization of supportive adults in the life of people, even in the medical field. And so I wanted to extend professional development with Ebony Kimber to the medical field so that they understand that that expectation that they're a helping professional as well, mm -hmm. and that it requires a certain amount of um, care and concern. Mm -hmm. And it connects with bedside manner because I have never been through medical school, but I have a guess that Bedside Manor is like a small corner or portion of medical school, right? <laughs> right, right. That is so true. And it's, I mean, and a lot of things that you just said, I think are so important for us to kind of highlight in this conversation. You know, when we think of healthcare professionals, a lot of times we don't put social workers and counselors under that umbrella. So I think you bring a wealth of information, even though your background, um, your specialty area has been um, youth and foster care, um, adoption, um, the information that you're teaching is cross-sectional. Like it's, it's something that everybody could use and benefit from. And I think that was why it was so important to just bring it to our audience. Um, I did want to ask you what exactly is bedside manner and why is that why is that language so important yeah so we will go in in significant depth in this in the webinar um because i will talk about the difference between like what we consider as social workers bedside manner and like what it is in the medical field and how those merge together but i know for me the best example is when i had my son um, and was at the hospital, you know, my husband and I were first time parents and had no idea what was happening in life, right? <laughs> having, right? right. <laughs> Just trying to figure it out. And, you know, our initial experience of going to the hospital, because, you know, we were super scared when we got there, it was not the best. How we were treated in the ER was not our best experience. Mm -hmm. um, so that they weren't sensitive to the fact that that was our first time. And mm -hmm. even though the ER is super fast paced, it still would have been helpful to calm our nervousness and our fears and our anxieties. Right. They a little kinder and caring to us. Um, but the difference in contrast to that was when we got up to the room, our nurse was phenomenal. Like she was, she catered to me. She catered to my husband, which doesn't happen all the time. She made sure mm -hmm. that he was good. She made sure to include him in conversations. She was, she knew I was in pain. And so she talked to me calm. Right. <laughs> me, like when I was like, I don't want the epidural. I want the epidural. Right. <laughs> she was like, 
okay. Right. She was always calm and voiced. And she was just through the whole process. She just walked us through it, even down to the point of when people, I had some coworkers who were in the neighborhood and they came and they were, had the best intentions, but like things had happened with our child and we just did not want anybody in the room at that moment. Right. And let her know that like me and, my, me and my husband were adamant and she cut it off. Right. No questions like she honored us in that. And so I think that is a perfect example of her honoring our needs and our wants, her catering to us in a calm manner. She didn't ever overreact. She walked us through the steps of things. She explained everything. She partnered with us. To me, that is a perfect example of what bedside manner is. In the rare disease space, um, that is not something we always see. A lot of times, you know, rare patients are forced to deal with their crises on their own. We all experience um, good bedside manner, poor bedside manner. I, I, I know for us, when we got our diagnosis, the bedside manner was terrible. I was 22 weeks pregnant and the doctor, he gave us the most horrific explanation of what we were dealing with. And he, he broke it down you know, it's one thing to give a patient information, but it's another thing to give them information that's going to rip them apart mm -hmm. while they're laying on the table half naked, right? <laughs> I think he was very descriptive. Um, so much so, you know, my husband had to say, okay, wait, like, I need for you to give her a second mm -hmm. because I couldn't even, I couldn't even catch my breath in between tears because he was just coming so back to back and I think it's just really important that um that just healthcare professionals helping professionals wherever you find yourself in your career it's, it's just so important that they understand um how you give a patient how you give a child how you give a family information can be detrimental mm -hmm. to their healthcare outcomes and so Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so um, one of the things that we wanted to just kind of touch on, guys, I want to just tell you real quickly, we are having a live webinar um, and we're going to be hosting that on July 14th at 10 o'clock a.m. Central Time. And Ebony is going to be our guest speaker um, talking more about Bedside Manor. But we did want to do this intro conversation to just kind of give you some nuggets about what she's going to be delving into at that webinar. So um, make sure to go to our website and go ahead and register for that event. Um, CEUs are available to um, eligible participants um, in healthcare, health helping professionals. Um, but just make sure you go register for that live event. I just wanted to plug that in real quick. Um, so just one more question, um, because again, we want to save the conversation for the webinar. How can physicians and other helping professionals like our social workers and our counselors, case managers, how can they improve the way that they approach um, families when they have to deliver information or obtain information? How can they improve their bedside manner approach? Yeah, so I, I truly believe, and like I said, we'll talk more about this, 
but it is an internal work that you have to do, right? This, jo this job or these jobs that we do are most of the time a calling for us. And so you have to examine your own values, your own personal um, misgivings, your own judgments, your own prejudices in order for you to be able to get what I would call the minimum standard. And for me, the minimum standard is to have empathy. Like uh -huh. if you have empathy for other people, if you can see what someone is going through and have a, a, a touch on your heart of what they are experiencing, then that will take you so far. But so many times I've come across helping professionals across all fields. I'm talking teachers, nurses, doctors, social workers, counselors in all fields mm -hmm. who did not have that common sense of empathy. Um, and really, I wouldn't even want to call it common sense. I mean, it's a, just a foundational structure of what you should have if you're going to enter the field. Yes. Right? Because it's not always common sense. Sometimes you do have to build that. Right. Because whatever, because sometimes you have your own traumas or you have your own experiences that have caused you to be more cold or and callous. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to have an awareness so that you can have the ability to just show a just a, a, a care or concern for the person. Like that doctor that you all had the experience with, mm -hmm. if he just have felt what it would have, if he had put himself in your place of being on that table and finding out these horrible things about the child that you unconditionally love. Right. And what that would feel like for him or his wife or his sister or his mother, mm -hmm. it would have completely changed the manner in which he had approached you all. Yes. And I think that is just foundational for any helping professional. Mm -hmm. That is so good. Listen, we are going to stop it right there because the whole purpose of this podcast episode is to tease you guys into joining the live. Um, we are so grateful to have Ebony bring us this information. Um, again, registration is open. It is required if you need or desire the CEU, um, but we will be streaming live on Zoom. Um, which you have to register to get that link, but we will also stream live on Facebook, um, on our Facebook page, the EWE Foundation. I will put all of that information in the description box. Ebony, we thank you so, so much for giving us these few minutes um, to just get this infomercial started. But then guys, join us on Wednesday, July 14th, 10 o'clock a.m. Central Standard Time, live on Facebook, live Zoom, um, to get more of this information, this conversation about extended bedside manner. Ebony, do you have any last words? No, I'm just super excited. I hope you guys show up with an open mind and we're going to have a good time. Yes, yes. All right, guys. So until the next episode, you guys continue to be rare. We will talk to you soon. The EWE Foundation is a proud supporter of the Being Rare podcast. To learn more, visit us online at www.theewefoundation.org. That's www.theewefoundation.org. Also, follow us on all social media platforms at Everyone Is We.